Open your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. You're saying, but we're in Colossians. I know. Uh, we're going to chase a bunny rabbit today for, for a little while. And we're going to try and shoot him as soon as we can see him. Uh, all right? So, quite literally. And it sounds like I'm going to compete with the kitties today as well. So, that's all right. They're lively. So, if you just stay with me, we will get through this. We will kill the spinning rabbit. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. It's a great passage. And basically, um, well, let's just read John chapter 10. And then we'll kind of get into this mess and try and sort through it. John chapter 10, verse 27 says this. It says, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. It says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Basically, what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at this verse in its relation to Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. So let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Paul says, He, referring to Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if, as Rusty said last week, but, that's a big but, (laughs) if, all right, Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So here's what we've done. We've basically, we've covered all of Colossians chapter 1, but basically I preached on these couple verses two weeks ago, And then last week, Rusty kind of took us ahead, and now we're going to kind of jump back for just a brief moment, and the next week we're going to continue on with chapter 2. I promise you, Colossians will move a bit quicker for us uh, once we've, now that we've gotten through chapter 1 and after today. So, but what we're doing is we're going to take a little bit deeper look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, by way of kind of taking a survey, if you will, of Scripture particularly dealing with the issue that Paul brings up here in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now, I, I've not always been sold on preaching verse by verse through the Bible. Um, I've kind of thought, well, maybe we can do it other ways and it's good. And, and I'm not saying this is the only way, but the one benefit to, to preaching verse by verse through the Bible, uh, or through books of the Bible, I should say, is it forces me to preach on things that I typically probably wouldn't preach on. Uh, this is a topic that I would love to preach on, but I would probably struggle to find the right place to preach on. And so we're going through Colossians, and Paul brings up this very difficult phrase, if indeed. So you will be presented blameless before God, holy before God, above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith. So basically, a couple weeks ago, 
there was kind of three overarching perspectives or views coming into this passage. And the first one, and I kind of addressed this a couple weeks ago, is this idea of eternal security. This idea of once saved, always saved. Now that's, that's a very Baptist term that we use often. It's other in other denominations as well, but uh, eternal security. So it's this idea, although they would not define it this way, but this is the culture in which this term finds residence, is this idea of once I pray this prayer and accept to Christ, walk this aisle, whatever the case may be, that it doesn't matter really how I live after that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I gotta, I gotta be a good person, I gotta be like Jesus, but, but it really doesn't matter ultimately because I will ultimately reach heaven. And so we find ourselves then in a Christian culture of passivity, lethargy, lazy Christians, uh, honestly probably full of a lot of Christians or people who call themselves Christians and are probably really not, um, if we're just honest about it. And we're going to see why in a few moments. Instead, though, I believe, I believe Scripture and Paul and here, and we see it as that when God takes up residence in our hearts, that basically this factory, if you will, when God, when God moves his factory into our lives, there is a product that is produced. That factory doesn't just sit there empty like many GM plants do around this area. It produces something Particularly, it produces the image of Christ in us. So this idea of I, I get saved and it doesn't really matter afterwards is really very foreign to Scripture. And I think we'll see that this morning. Number two, this, or the second idea is that you can lose your salvation. This idea that we can, we can be saved and then now not be saved. And that's a perspective that some of us come to this passage with. Well, well, well there you go. He says, if indeed you continue to faith. So that means that if you don't, then you've lost your salvation and now you need to get saved again. And, and again, I don't think that that's what we see here. You know, it's interesting. Um, Jacob Arminius, he... Uh, you study some history. I don't give you all the background on him, but it was interesting as I was studying up on this, that view, or Jacob Arminian, they called the Arminian view, if you will, uh, kind of espouses this idea that you can lose your salvation, that there is no security in your salvation. But what I found was interesting is that Jacob Arminius himself did not explicitly believe that. But instead, the fact that he could, you could lose your salvation was implicit based upon his view of election, his view of predestination, which I think is very interesting. I think we're going we're gonna to dive a little bit of that into it, or a little bit into that today, because here's the deal. If, if, those, if salvation is dependent solely or at least primarily upon our free will and our doing, then the rest of the salvation process must be dependent upon our free will, our doing as well. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, and I, I want to confuse you too much from the very beginning. But here's the deal. If we properly view salvation, see, most of us, when we view salvation, we view it as that moment in time where we accepted Christ, where we entered into the kingdom. Paul doesn't view salvation that way. Salvation is that point, then it's a journey, and then it's a destination, right? We usually call that salvation, sanctification, glorification. But for Paul, that's what he means by working out your salvation is that whole process. So when we approach this moment in which we're saved, what I find is interesting is that those who 
want to push the idea of free will and completely disregard any kind of election or predestination that I believe is taught in Scripture, that what happens then in those moments is they, they, they want to say, well, it's my doing, I'm the one that accepted Christ, it's my free will here, but then it's God's responsibility to do the rest of the process. Paul doesn't break those things up. It's one thing. So I think an honest look at Scripture, and we're going to get there as we go, is that it's either all or nothing. Either God is responsible for the whole thing, or he's not responsible for any of it. So either he gets credit for all of it, or we get credit for all of it. Does that make sense? Everybody follow me so far? Okay. All right. So, this idea that we can lose our salvation, uh, that, that is going to be coming from, typically from a person who says, number one, that, well, it was me who got saved in the first place. Like, it was my doing. Yes, it was God's grace and stuff, but, but it was my choosing and an emphasis on our work. And then it comes down to an emphasis on the work that they do in order to keep that salvation. So therefore, my losing it is again back in my hands. So let me, let me rephrase it like this and we're going to move on. Well, never mind. We are going to go ahead and move on. Third view, perseverance of the saints, I think is, is the better term to help us understand really what it means to live out this life with Christ. Um, I believe it helps us to balance the work of God's and, the, and our work. It kind of gives us a proper perspective, a biblical perspective on what it means for us to work out our salvation. Now, before we get going, I just want to make sure I'm clear. We're not talking about earning our salvation. We're not talking about we have to do enough good to get to heaven. That's not what Scripture teaches. But there is products that must be produced from the factory of our lives. That's a result of he who mightily works in us. So with that said, I want to read to you uh, a short section from the Westminster Confession uh, in chapter 17 of the Confession on the Perseverance of the Saints. It affirms, it says, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere there to the end and be eternally saved. I believe that statement, obviously it's not Scripture, but I believe it's founded on Scripture, and it's kind of the framework which we're going to work in this morning. But I want to give you a few things to write down here, maybe some notes to put off to the side. But basically, our final perseverance or the final perseverance of the believer depends not upon free will, but upon the following. And I think I'd, I want to encourage you to write these down. So our perseverance depends upon the immutability of God's decree of election. So the unchangeableness of God's decree of election. There's a whole lot there. We're just not going to have time to get into this morning. I want to give these things. You can look these up and study these this week. It's also based upon the unchangeable love of God. Our perseverance is based upon the unchangeable love of God. Our perseverance is based upon the efficacy of Christ's intercession. So our perseverance is based upon the effectiveness of Christ as our intercessor between us and God. 
Our perseverance is also based upon the abiding power of God's Spirit. The abiding power of God's Spirit. And one that I really do wish we had time to get into today, but the seed of, of regeneration. Our perseverance is based upon the seed of regeneration in our lives. So, the immutability of God's decree of election, the unchangeable love of God, the efficacy of Christ's intercession, the abiding power of God's Spirit, and the seed of regeneration. These things, like, again, I wish we, we had time, but these truths here are the foundation, the bedrock, the, the basis for our, our perseverance. It, it is because of these truths that those of us who are saved will persevere. We will make it through. So, here's what we're going to do. John 10, I believe, is a passage that displays beautifully this doctrine. Now, here's the deal. We're not going to be able to dive real, real deep into John 10. Because what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at multiple other verses that apply to John 10. So, to, to apply to this doctrine, the doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. So, what, what I want to encourage you to do, typically... We basically take like three verses and we spend a long time talking about those three. Well, today we're going to take a few verses, but we're going to take multiple other verses that help us understand this doctrine. We're going to take what's called like a more systematic approach to this doctrine. I think it'll help us. So I want to encourage you to write down these verses as we go through these and study these this week. So with that said, the first statement that we, need, we can make about the doctrine of perseverance is that only those who persevere to the end have been truly born again. John ten twenty seven, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They follow me. You can see in the next verse that these are the people who will never perish. You see that? Right there in verse 27. My sheep are my voice. I know them. They follow me. These are the ones then in the next verse that get eternal life that will never perish. See it right there in verse 27. The people who hear his voice and follow him. These are the people that are born again. These are the people who are, who are born again. They follow him with no ending. The next thing underneath kind of that broad scope of only those who persevere to the end have been truly born again is this idea that there is a necessity of continuing in faith throughout life. All right. Again, I, I hope some of us are beginning to feel a tension. A tension of, you mean there's something like that I have to do. That's a good tension. And I think, well, again, just hang with me because I want you to, to feel that tension. Hopefully we'll find a resolve for that as we work through. It's interesting because, and I'm going to pick on Baptists, but Baptists tend to, to miss this in these verses we're going to look at because they're so, and I believe this is good motives, but I think they're so afraid of us turning into a works-based salvation that we want to stay clear of this idea of the necessity of 
continuing in faith. Again, I don't know what they do with these verses that we're going to look at, but let's look at them and and see how they apply. Um, 1 Peter 1.5 says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I just want to make a quick point about this, that God does not guard us and our salvation does not guard us apart from our faith, but by working through our faith so that he enables us to continue to believe in him. So God works through our faith. Again, you can go back to that ver- this verse this week and look through that a little bit further, but God guards us in the faith or in our relationship with him through our faith where he enables our faith. John 8, verse 31 through 32, says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This idea of abiding is not just a one time you accept Jesus' words and then you go on a different person. The idea of abide is to continually live in, to draw source power from, to to live in him, to, to be connected to him, to abide in him. Jesus is warning that one evidence of genuine faith is continuing in his word. That's what Jesus is telling us. Again, this sounds quite different than the I prayed a prayer, I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower, now I'm going to heaven, it doesn't matter what happens in between. He says those who abide. Matthew 10, verse 22. (laughs) And again, I just don't know what some people do with this first. But he says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Those those are not my words. Those are Jesus' words. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Hmm. The next thing that we need to say about persevering is that there is a final goal in mind. So we just saw that there is an obvious continuing to our faith that must take place. Not my words, not even a... Paraphrase, we see them right there. First Peter, John, Matthew. Then we see there's a final goal in mind. And we can go back to Colossians 1, to see this. It says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith. There's a final goal. Be holy and blameless and above reproach. Like, it's not that we just live this life and all of a sudden God goes, you're holy and blameless and above reproach. Enter into my presence. Yes, we're justified, and so our position before God is holy, but we are working this salvation out in which our holiness is growing and our dependence and blamelessness is growing and the above reproachedness, if you will, to my life is growing, right? It's growing. God is working that out in us. There is a final goal and a purpose to what God does to us here. Next, that there will be those who fall away. It is inevitable.
And you just said, or you're saying, I'm at, you just said that we can't lose our salvation. So what do you mean? Well, just hang on. We'll get there. There will be those who fall away. It is inevitable. John, 1 John 2.19. Let's read this. I think you'll find this very interesting. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So there was people that was with them that failed to be with them any longer. It was those who fell away. John clearly states here that when people fall away from fellowship with the church and from belief in Christ, they show that their faith was not real in the first place and that they were never a part of the true body of Christ. Let's read back through that verse again. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, so if they were of us, even when they were with us, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. What John is saying is that they were with us like physically, but they were not of us. And so when they left, it made it very plain that they were never of us. Does that make sense? So they fell away, but they were never part of us. They were never sheep who hear his voice. He knows them and they follow him. They were never in that category. The next statement, broad statement that we need to make about perseverance is that all who are truly born again will persevere to the end. This is where each of you who's a follower of Christ, you go, woohoo, like amen, yes. Why? Like, like this is us, uh, for those of us who are followers of Christ, okay? We necessarily will persevere to the end. It is a necessity. So let's see why. John 10, 28. I give them life. This is to those who follow me, who I know them, and they hear my voice. To those people, Christ says, I give them eternal life. That's very important, right from the very beginning, that I give them eternal life. They don't just find it. They don't say a prayer and get it. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So to Christ's sheep, he gives them eternal life. And he's already said, you can go back and look at verse 10 of of John chapter 1, that he gives them life to the full. And then the consequence, guys, of them being his sheep and the gift of eternal life is that they will never perish. That's the consequence of that situation. And we think of consequence as a bad thing. Consequence also can mean a good thing. That's a good consequence of being one of his sheep, him giving eternal life, and you will never perish. So the first thing we see is that our perseverance is guaranteed. Perseverance is guaranteed. We see this in John chapter 10, verse 28. Guys, 
Our perseverance is guaranteed. It could not be otherwise if we have eternal life. Like you either have eternal life or you don't. It cannot be otherwise. You have eternal life temporarily. Like, no, you have eternal life. And of course, obviously we know that this is those who are his sheep and the ones who follow him. What's interesting that in the Greek, the most forceful phrase in this verse, like the most emphatic phrase in this verse is the middle one that says, and they will never perish. Like the emphasis, if you will, is put on that phrase. They will never perish. Matter of fact, it's very, if you, if you, if you look at the Greek and, and kind of see what's going on in there, basically you can translate it this, if you will, and they shall, I'm sorry, and they shall certainly not perish forever. It's the feel of this text right now. Now, our language, they, they, ESV decided to translate it that, and they shall never perish. But guys, the, the emphasis here is that they shall certainly not perish forever. That's what it's trying to communicate to us. The emphasis, this emphasizes that those who are Jesus' sheep and who follow him and to whom he has given eternal life, shall never be separated from Christ. Think about that. Think about that in your life. I have eternal life. I will never perish. Think about that. Next thing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Just think about that phrase for a moment. I was at lunch earlier this week, and we were reflecting on some verses and stuff, and this came up. And I think those of us at that lunch just kind of sat for a moment. There is no condemnation. Do you understand what that means? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You say, how does that apply to perseverance? Let's read Romans 8.1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guys, understand That if there is no condemnation for us, if the price has been paid, think about this. This, uh, these, I hope, yeah, okay. If the price has been paid in full, for God to then make us pay part of that price would be unjust. We have been bought and paid for by Jesus, paid in full. So if we have been paid in full and we fall away or we do some sins or such 
that requires payment on our part, then God is unjust. Because he's taking a double payment for our sins. It doesn't work that way. That makes God not God because he's now no longer just. So the fact that there's now no longer any condemnation for our sin because we are in Christ, by his nature, he must keep us. Do you see that? There is no condemnation for us. The price has been paid. By his very nature, he's required to keep us. Next, glorification is certain. Glorification is certain. Romans 8.30. Love this verse. Read this with me. And try and... Well, just read this with me. Verse, chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified. All right. Now let's think about this. What is glorification? Glorification is the result of our perseverance. Right? So we persevere, and then that process is finished with our glorification. Like, that is the ultimate, that's where, that's the goal that we're headed to. That glorification is the holy, blameless, above reproach, and so on, so on. That's the direction that we're going. But what's Paul saying? Like, is Paul already there? What's going on? I mean, let's read that again. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he what? He also glorified. What's Paul doing? Think about it for a second. Paul's still alive. Has Paul reached perfection? Is he holy and blameless and above reproach? Like, is he, is he already there? No. Paul is so certain of the glorification of those whom God has predestined and called and justified that he speaks of it as if it has already happened. Think about that. Paul is so certain that we will reach that day that he speaks about it as if it's already happened. It's ours. It's there. It's already done. The certainty of our glorification. And I, I, I don't want to go down this rabbit trail, but I do want to point out to you that in this verse, those whom he predestined those will reach glorification again I don't have time to to dive into all that maybe one of these days we will but our glorification is as certain as our election our glorification is as certain as our election Next, the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 through 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory. You know what guarantee in this verse means? Basically, it means like first installment or deposit or down payment or pledge. Basically, the gift of the Holy Spirit is God's contractual binding to him keeping us till the day we require possession of our inheritance or also our glorification. Like, this is God's guarantee to us. When he gave us the Holy Spirit, he committed himself to give all the further blessings of eternal life. Also, all who have the Holy Spirit, all who are truly born again, have God's unchanging promises. So, that's what we looked at. Only those who persevere to the end have been truly born again. So what do we mean by that? What we mean is that, what scripture means by that is that we, that those who make it through the end, those who persevere, those are the ones who are truly born again. Second phrase, all who are truly born again will persevere to the end. So those who are truly born again are guaranteed to persevere to the end. So, the next thing, and I want to, we're going to break from John chapter 10 here for just a moment for this next big point. It says, those who finally fall away may give many external signs of conversion. So the question, what about those who have an intellectual persuasion of the truth of the gospel, but no genuine faith in their hearts? I'll give you an example. Judas. Judas. You think Judas gave all the outward examples of a follower of Jesus? Right? Yeah. I mean, think about it. Even, even that night when Jesus was betrayed and Jesus says, you know, one of you will betray me. And they're all, all the disciples are going, oh, it's not me. I mean, no one was like, it's Judas. Like, like no one pointed the fingers, right? He had the outward, and he was a follower of Jesus, like right there with Jesus. Do you think that there could be people among us who think that they're followers of Christ but are not really? Do you think there have been those people in the past? Here's the deal. I'm not putting them down, okay? Like, we need to pray for those people. We need to help lead them to the cross. And, but the fact is, if we're not aware of them, how can we lead them? How can we pray for them if we just think everything's all fine and dandy and, and everybody around us is good? They're Jesus follower. We're good to go. But if we're aware of it, and hopefully that prods prayer for them, that God would open their hearts, open their eyes, that he would show them that we could be that light to them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Did we not go to church every Sunday? Did we not get baptized? Did I not give my money to the church? Did I not pastor a church with lots of people? Did I not go on mission trips? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let me point out something else that Jesus did not, or something, let me point out something that Jesus did not say. He did not say, I knew you at one time, but now I no longer know you. He did not say, you know, there, we did have a relationship at one point, and then you chose to go down the wrong path, and then I forgot who you were. What does Jesus say? He says, I never knew you. They never were genuine believers, but they had done actions that appear to be fruits of a Christian. And that were even used for God's kingdom. They even used to further the advancement of the gospel. But there was something that was missing. Mark, let's go to Mark 4, verse 5 through 6. Talking about the seeds falling on different ground. And he says, Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. So this is people... That when they hear the word, they immediately receive it. But because they have no root, they fall away. And here's the deal. The fact that they have no root in themselves indicates that there was no source of life within these plants. And same is true for those among us with apparent faith. That if there is no root, there's no source of life, there's... There's no internal regeneration that took place. Oftentimes this looks like an, like an emotional experience. We're like, I just, I just love that experience and love that idea of Jesus, but I, there's no intellectual um, uh, commitment, if you will. Uh, repentance, if you will. The change never takes, the root never, t- uh, the, the, the plant never takes root in our lives. It can also look the other way around where there's an intellectual ascent. And so you know now that I'm supposed to do these things because I'm a follower of Jesus, but your heart is far from it. There's no root that has taken place and consumed your whole being, heart, and mind. So there were those who have given external signs, many external signs, but fallen away. Um, I think this has happened here. If I'm just going to be honest with us, I think there's been people that have 
come into Renovation Church and then left quickly, or maybe not even quickly, maybe they were here for a little while. And um, they, they showed signs, fruit, and then all of a sudden they disappear. And I think the rightful thing for us to do is to assume that they were never saved and then go after them as if they're not saved, to bring them back. Does that make sense? You see, if we just assume, well, well, they're saved, even though their actions aren't showing it, and we just let them go, I think we can assume them to hell. Instead of going after them and saying, what, what, what's, where's the disconnect at here? Where's it at? You showed these signs, but something's not right now. What's going on? And love and concern. Not in harsh and mean, but being honest and with love. I do think as a church, and we need to keep this as our goal, and I want us to keep this as our goal, that when we preach the word and we have a commitment in this community to follow the word, that those who come in and that show signs, eventually those signs without an inward change will be exposed. Does that make sense? That's good. Like we want that. We don't want them to think that they're saved and then eventually go to hell. I want them to realize, no, there is a disconnect in my heart. And then we're there as a body to, to show them and bring them along. Now, this, this may not always happen. There could be people who go their entire lives thinking that they're a follower of Christ. And they got these actions, but something's missing. So let's go back to John. If only those who are saved will persevere, and those who are saved must persevere... What assurance do we have? All right? Now, this is where most of us go, all right, because you have me, I, like, I don't even know if I'm saved anymore. So what assurance do I have? Uh, and that's okay. Like, I don't know. I used to hear sermons growing up in youth group, and they're like, no, don't doubt your faith, because, you know, that's bad. And, and they don't, I, don't, I don't know why they did that. Maybe they just wanted want us to make, make us feel bad or something like that. But I think it's good for us to sometimes go, Am I a Christian? Like we should have that hard and that honest enough of a look at our lives and go, am I really a follower of Christ? Or am I just emotionally connected? Or am I just intellectually connected? What, what's going on? So, what can give a believer genuine assurance? It's the good stuff. I think we've been in the good stuff all morning, but this is good stuff too. First of all, it is God who gives eternal life. Now, here's what's interesting. Some of us right now are going, but like, I want to be able to look and go, checkbox, that says that I'm a follower of Jesus. Like, that's a good, like I can say, yes, I went to church three out of the last four weeks, so that makes me a Christian and and, you know, I say nice things to my workers, and I only cuss 2% of the time. So, like, that's my, that's my checkbox of now I'm assurance. And the first thing, and I think we have to start with this, is that it's God who gives eternal life. I don't think there's any greater assurance. It's Him who gives eternal life. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Just as election and our salvation is not dependent upon our ability, neither is the completion of our sanctification or perseverance dependent upon us. It's all dependent upon God. Let me read to you this article. John Jefferson Davis, he's a theologian at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And he was writing on Augustine's treatise of the gift of perseverance. Okay? So follow me. I'll, I'll try and read this. this is, he's writing on Augustine's writing that was in the late, uh, or sorry, in the early 5th century. It says this, Augustine affirms, writing about Augustine, Augustine affirms the grace of God as the ultimate basis for the believer's final perseverance. Augustine says, I assert that the perseverance by which we persevere in Christ, even to the end, is the gift of God. Then John Jefferson goes on writing about Augustine, says, from a human perspective, it is inscrutable or unexplainable why, given two pious men, or two spiritual men, one should be given the grace to final perseverance and the other not. From a divine perspective, it must be the case that the individual who perseveres is among the predestined while the other is not. The one who fails to persevere has not been called according to God's plan and chosen in Christ according to God's purpose. He goes on, God's sovereignty in election and predestination then is the basis for Augustine's understanding of final perseverance. The grace of God, which both begins a man's faith and which enables it to persevere into the end, is not given in respects to our merits, but is given according to his own most secret and at the same time most righteous, wise, and beneficent will. Since those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Going on after that quote, those whom have been called will make it to the end. Paul speaks of it as if it is a sure thing. As God, if God has called you, he will complete you. It's his work in our lives. Next point is dependent upon Christ's power, not ours. Back to that John 10, 28 verse, it says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one snatched them out of my hand. The focus here is on Jesus' power. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Not the wolf in verse 12, not the thieves and robbers in 1 and 8, but not anyone can snatch them out of my hand, he says. Guys, to think otherwise would entail the conclusion that Jesus had failed in the explicit assignment given him by the Father to preserve all those given to him. Did you hear that? To think otherwise. To think other than Jesus will keep us secure in his hand. To think anything other than that 
that explicit assignment is to think that he has failed the assignment that God has given to him. When we say we can lose our salvation, you are saying Jesus can fail at the task given to him by the Father. The ultimate guarantee of our perseverance rests with the good shepherd, the one who watches over our souls. Next, our assurance in Christ is not independent of the Father. Is not independent of the Father. John 10, 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus just said that no one, they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, the Father who has given them to me, who has put them in my hands, who has drawn them, called them, justified them, glorified, put them in my hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who is greater than all, no one can snatch them out of his hand hands. Like everything, and this is what I want us to see, like everything that Jesus does, nothing is independent of the Father. All that Jesus says and does is merely the embodiment of the Father's will. Everything. John 6, 37 through 40. Let's read these powerful words. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. (laughs) That's a whole other sermon. But all that the Father gives to me will come. So those who he draws, it's a have to. Okay, I gotta stop that sermon. They will come. They will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So those whom he never knew were never his. Because right here he says he'll never cast them out. So there's not possible for them to be his and then for them to cast them out. It's not possible. Jesus says here, I will never cast them out. Verse 38, I'm preaching on a different sermon. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. The will of the Father is for Jesus to keep you, for Jesus to keep me. That's the plan. That's the task given to Jesus. And if he doesn't do it, he fails. And he's not God if he does that. You understand? This should be so dear to our hearts, just like our salvation is dependent upon Christ. So is our keeping dependent upon Christ. And if he can't do it, we sure as heck can't do it. 39, and this is the will of the Father who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. Think about that in Colossians. What we're talking about, being resurrected and presented holy and blameless. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This means that it is the Father himself who ultimately just stands behind the preservation of Jesus' sheep. And God is ultimately the one behind us says, keep them. Here they are. You keep them. And I'm going to empower you to keep them. Who has the strength to steal from God? Think about that. Who has the strength to steal from God? No one. 
Who has sufficient intellect to outwit the sovereign father? Who? No one. No one. If God, in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No exclusions. Is greater than all. And if God is greater than all things, then there is no force or being sufficient to sever the relation between the true believer and Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from him. In short, Paul would say to the Colossians, I love this. We're going to get here probably in a few years. Colossians 3 verse 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. There is no greater assurance. Then Jesus says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Let's take a look at this. This is so awesome. Verse 28 and 29 affirm that both the Father and the Son are engaged in the perfect preservation of his sheep. It's no wonder then that Jesus can say, I and the Father are one. But here's what's interesting. If you look at the Greek, that one is the neuter, hen used in this, versus the masculine, heis. There's the two different words. The one used here is the neuter versus the masculine. Jesus is not saying in this text that they are one person, as the masculine word heis for one means. But instead, Jesus and his Father are perfectly one in action. Think about that. They are one in action in our perseverance. The guarantee of our perseverance. They are one in action. Whatever Jesus does, the Father does, and vice versa. John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father and the Son are one in action. They're both concerned with their glory as it is displayed in the preservation of those whom he has called. All right. We are almost there. Questions to ask. Questions to ask. I want to steal these from Dr. Wayne Grudem. I think these are very helpful questions for us. First one is, do I have a present trust in Christ for salvation? Remember, what we're talking about here is the assurance of our preservation. The assurance of our preservation. And we saw that it's dependent upon Christ's power. It's not independent of the Father. And it's, it's totally by God. So that's, that's the assurance. And these are questions for us to ask. To determine whether or not we, to help determine, I should say, whether or not we are actually genuine followers of Jesus. First question, do I have a present trust in Christ for salvation? Colossians 1, 22-23 Back to that verse. He says, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Let me ask you, do you trust that he has now reconciled you? Do you trust that this job was final and thorough? 
do you trust that? If you don't trust that, then your trust is not in Jesus. Your trust is in him plus something else or not him altogether. Do you trust him? Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. John 3.16, let's look at this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The word believe there is a present tense verse, meaning whosoever continues believing in him. Let that rock your world on the verse that is quoted more than anything else. Continues believing in him. Who we, and, and he, well, let me, let me ask the next question. Do, do you have a trust in Christ today to forgive your sins and to take you without blame before the throne of God? This question, this first question I think is, is helpful because it's in contrast to those testimony stories we tell. It's like, I know I'm a believer because there was that day. No, that's not the question I'm asking today. Are you a believer? Do you trust him today? That's the question. Most people who call themselves Christians can point back to a day that might somewhat resemble the birth of their sanctification process. The question is, do you trust him today? Next question, is there evidence of regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in my heart, in my life, but particularly in my heart? Is there evidence of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? Now, this can look many different ways. I want to kind of fly through these. But first, it can look like a subjective testimony of the Holy Spirit within our hearts, bearing witness that we are God's children. I understand that's subjective, but that can be one of the ways. Hopefully, it's a combination of these. Romans 8, 15-16 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you have that? You may not have it all the time, but do you have that? There's times where I'm going, God, I can't, feel you at all. But often, there's this testimony, and even in those moments, there's this testimony, the Holy Spirit saying, you're mine. You're mine. We should be producing fruits of the Spirit. Again, this is the subject of testimony of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. Galatians 5, 22-23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And we're not going to do this perfectly. But is your life bearing these fruits? The fruits of the Spirit. Also, fruits uh, should affect one's ministry as well. Some, some people intend to discourage others, to drag them down, injure their faith, 
provoke controversy and divisiveness. If that's you, those are anti-fruits of the Spirit. Instead, do you want to edify others in conversation and prayers and work and what you do? Um, the continuing to believe and accept the sound teaching of the church, or of, of, of the Bible, I should say, um, as should be presented in the church. Do you have a desire to continue in that? Or are you just happy where you're at? Like, I know Jesus and we could. First John 4, 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If you are preaching God's word and you don't want to follow it, then let the, let the evidence reveal what it may. Number two, we're talking about evidence of regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Second one, can, continuing present relationship with Jesus. John 15, 4 says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the van, in, in the van, <laughs> in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. It's a pretty big van. Um, all right. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Guys, again, not what happened back then. What's happening right now? Is your heart abiding in him? You're like, yes, it is to get me through this sermon. Amen. All right. Mine too. We're coming to the end. We're going to shoot this rabbit here. All right. Third. A life of obedience to God's commands. Let's pause for just a moment. Is this obedience to God's commands? Not, I'm a good person. Because the one is not necessarily the other, and the one is defined by our terms. Was in a regrettably, I was in a Facebook conversation debate, if you will, and I just don't typically do those because they're just worthless and pointless, but in my opinion, but um, I'm in there, and the dude says, how dare you judge my relationship with God? Supposed, person's supposed to be a Christian. I didn't make the comment that provoked that statement. Uh, however, I did support the comment that provoked that statement. How dare you? And then the person, next person says, just, just looking at fruits. Just looking at fruits. And then, the next, and then that person responds, well, I'll put my fruits up against yours any day. You, to which the person responded that I supported says, um, I'm not the standard. Jesus is the standard. And that's my point, guys. It, a life of obedience to God's command. See, we can continue in a false assurance of our salvation thinking we're saved because we think we're good people. Instead of following God's commands, no matter how hard they might be. Next point, and we're almost done. It says, do I see long-term pattern of growth in my Christian life? Do I see a long-term pattern of growth in my Christian life? It doesn't matter if you've been saved for six months or 60 years. Do I see a pattern of growth? 
Are you a different person today than you were six months ago? Are you a different person that day than you were two years before that? Were you a different person that day than you were five years before that? Is there a pattern of, yes, all of us are going to go like this, right? But is the general, are we generally moving forward and moving upward? Is that, that's the product that's being produced in our factory of God taking residence in our hearts. Second Peter 1 verse 5 through 11 says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from the former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whoo! The way we confirm our call and election is to continue to grow in these things. This implies that our assurance of salvation can be something that increases over time as we go. You should be more sure a year from now than you are today that you are His. Hmm. Every day and every year that God adds to me these character traits, I gain a greater assurance of my salvation because of His work in me. I see the effects of it. So, as we wind it down here, the doctrine, this doctrine I believe should cast much worry and fear on those who have backslidden or strain away from Christ. Or those who don't have much concern for Christ and the things that concern Christ, like his bride, like his holiness, like the poor, like the needy. But do you have a concern for Christ? If you don't, much more than just to save your own skin, then I would be afraid. Prayer. Spend time with God. This doctrine should be incredibly comforting, though, and encouraging for those who see and answer these things with, yes, I see God. I see him at work in my life. I know it's his power. I see him changing me from the inside out. These are the, the effects of what he's doing in my life. It should be comforting and encouraging. So comforting both that, yes, I can stand secure here, but encouraging to keep going, to keep pushing, to keep working harder, to not be satisfied with where we're at right now. We need to stay away from false assurances. Assurances in our works, assurances in our prayers, assurances in our church membership, assurance, assurance in our affirmations from others. We find our assurance in the work of Christ in our lives. We must persevere. Why? 
Why do I think that I'm a follower of Christ and going to persevere to the end? Because I see the work of God in my life and I know that he is faithful to finish it. So what do we do? What do I do in that case? I work with his power that so wonderfully works within me to glorify God in everything that I do, resting in the assurance that he will finish what he started. Let me read you this one last quote from Pastor Spurgeon on Hebrews 6, which is a text we didn't even begin to get into in this sermon. But he says this. He says, There is a tendency in the human mind to stop short of the heavenly mark. As soon as ever we have attained to the first principles of a religion, have passed through baptism and understand the resurrection of the dead, there is a tendency in us to sit still, to say, I have passed from death to life. Here I may take my stand and rest. Whereas the Christ life was intended not to be sitting still, but a race, a perpetual motion. The apostle therefore endeavors to urge the disciples forward and make them run with diligence the heavenly race, looking unto Jesus. He tells them that it is not enough to have on a certain day passed through a glorious operation of the Spirit, but he teaches them it is absolutely necessary that they should have the Spirit all their lives, that they should, as long as they live, be progressing in the truth of God. It's not enough to just say, well, there was that day. No, what is going on now? What is God doing now? What has he changed in your life recently? What are the effects that you see of the Holy Spirit working the salvation out in our lives? What do you see? Let me encourage you. If you see the effects of that spirit, let me encourage you, push. Push hard. When you think you're just beginning to get comfortable, ask someone to prick you really hard. Someone to go, hey, stop it. Keep going. Don't just sit there. If you go to these questions and you're going, I don't know. This, I don't know. Let me encourage you to wrestle that out with God. I'd be more than willing to talk with you to to help you work through that. Um, But ultimately, it's going to come down to you standing before the throne of God. Because I don't know, I can't help you see your heart in those different situations. And only you and God can sort out, are those just good things I'm doing or are those the effect of the Holy Spirit? So let me encourage you, push you to be praying, to spend time with God, to work through that if you're not sure. And if you, know, if you want greater assurance, if you're going like walking around kind of half defeated because I, like I think God, yes, but, but no, pray, spend time with God, ask him. You know where Satan wants us at? He wants us confused. He wants us doubting. Like he wants us sitting there going, well, I don't know if I am. Or not. So then we walk in weakness instead of in the power of the Holy Spirit. We walk in ineffectiveness instead of kingdom effectiveness. Make it a commitment. And then those of you who, who go, I know I'm saved. You know what? It's okay to every once in a while to sit there and go, are you sure, God? Because the way I'm acting is not holy. 
what I'm doing is not becoming of you. Then ask him to reassure that, to fix that in your life and to reassure you of the call that he has put on your life. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, as sure as if it has already happened, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. Your word is so powerful, so mighty to save. Father, you're so good to us. You're so gracious to us. Father, you don't leave us in our filth. You don't leave us in our where we were at when you found us, but instead you have promised to bring us along, to change us. Not for our sake, although the benefits are great, but for your sake, for your glory, for your power, for your majesty. Father, I just ask that those of us who know we are sheep, We hear your voice. Father, I just thank you for that. I thank you that our assurance doesn't stand or is not based on what we do or what we can do or will do. But Father, it's based upon you, your strength, and and ultimately it's based upon your character. Something that you are bound to. Father, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus not just to redeem us to yourself, but you sent your son and had given him the task to ensure our perseverance. You've given him the task. And just as sure as his work on the cross was completed, so will be his work of finishing that he has begun in our lives. Father, we give you the praise and the glory for what you've done. And we love you. And lastly, Father, we pray for those who who are not sure. Father, I pray and beg you that you would reveal that with clarity to them that you would plainly show them. But Father, we know that you can show them plainly and without a call on their lives that they will not see it. And so Father, I ask that you would draw them, that you would call them, that you would bring them in and open their hearts. Father, one more song. And Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful day. I... I pray, let me say this last couple of things. Some, sometimes we end on songs and reflection. Uh, and today I just really felt led out. I want you to leave with nothing else on your mind but these words. You walk out that door, you fellowship with each other, you go to lunch, you go spend time with mom today thinking about what God has done, that he ensures your person that he is the power that works in us. Let that be um, a topic of discussion 
Some of you are going, well, my mom's not here. She's not going to have a clue what you talked about. That's all right. Season the conversation with the salt of God's word. And see, see what God does in that mist. All right, you guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful day.